Okay, good morning. Thank you for your patience. First of all, I want to thank our sponsors for this morning's class, enabling us the opportunity to study Parshas Toldos together. Special thank you to Jesse and Sarah Marilis in memory of his beloved brother, Avi Marilis, Avram Moshe ben David Marilis, whose neshama should have an aliyah. A couple of uh, housekeeping notes quickly before we begin the amazing Parshas Toldos. First of all, this uh, Sunday night at 8 p.m., we have an incredible guest speaker, Gidon Ramon Lichtman. Gidon Lichtman flew one of the first Israeli Air Force missions. He's the last surviving hero. You may have seen uh, the movie Above and Beyond, the incredible story of the first Israeli Air Force. We'll be showing that film from 6.30 to 8. But even if you've already seen that film, the last member of that first Israeli Air Force, one of the true heroes of the modern era, will be speaking at 8 p.m. The program is free. It's open to the public. Details are in the lobby or the weekly, but make sure to mark your calendar this Sunday night. And uh, lastly, uh, as we do every single year, we're raising money for the Jewish Education Scholarship Fund. Our schools collectively give out, thank you, our schools collectively give out $6 million to uh, scholarship to children. There are still countless families who struggle to meet the gap between the reduced tuition and what they can do. I take it upon myself to try to raise about $80,000 a year without which these children literally would be in public school. This fund has enabled children to go back from public school to Jewish education. We have an event this Thursday night. The uh, details are in the lobby as well. I hope you'll give to the point that you can participate in the event. If you can't do that much, please do whatever you can because we need absolutely everybody's help in order to be able to address this challenge. Parshas told us, page 124 in the Arts Girl Stone Chumash, as always, we'll try to do an overview of the parsha. And then we'll get into our specific psukim that we're going to see. Yeah. Still trying to figure this out over here. Okay. Okay. Parsha begins with the uh, story of last week's Parsha Yitzchak and Rivka have met. The great Shidduch was arranged. They're married. And for 20 years, they struggle with infertility. Fertility is a great challenge as well in our time. Primary infertility, secondary infertility, something we should all be very sensitive about how we talk, what we assume. We don't know which of our friends have children or grandchildren struggling to have, giving us grandchildren or great-grandchildren. And so uh, it's a fine balance between having nachas and taking joy in our own simchas, but not doing so with assumptions and doing so with sensitivity to the people around us. Rivka suffers. She suffers terribly. Yitzchak also suffers. He doesn't suffer as much. And we'll see in a moment because we're going to look at these specific psukim. Part of the reason Yitzchak is not suffering as much has nothing to do with the gender difference, although maybe there is one, but it has to do with the fact that Yitzchak was promised that he was going to have progeny. He was going to be the continuity of Avram. So he had a level of confidence that Rivka did not have. She did not know it would come through her just because she was Yitzchak's wife. We already have the precedent of Avram finding another wife in order to begin a sense of continuity. But ultimately, Rivka does conceive. Yaakov and Esav are born. They emerge, very different personalities. We have, of course, the famous story. Avram died. Yitzchak's in the midst of mourning. Yaakov makes lentils, which are parallel to us. The Suda Savra, the egg and the, and, the, and the bagel or the bread, the mourner eats when they, when they return from the funeral. And... Esav is so hungry, he comes in. He's out in the field. He's busy uh, hunting. He comes in and he's exhausted. He's exhausted. 
Give me some of this red stuff. Give me some of that grub. Give me some of that food. I'm starving. And Esav, we know, is the progenitor of the nation of Edom, which we consider to be modern-day Christianity. And we are in what Chazal said was the fourth Goliath. There would be four exiles. We are still in that fourth exile, the exile of Edom. True, we like to think that we're in the beginning of the Messianic era, the Eschalta de Geula. How could, speaking of the uh, story of the Israeli Air Force, the miracles surrounding 1948, 1967, the miracles surrounding today, there's more Torah thriving and flourishing in Israel than ever before. Sovereignty, autonomy in the Holy Land. As bad as a picture you could paint of how things are in Israel, we've never been safer, we've never been more prosperous, we've never had more progress. Jewish people have never been in more control of their own destiny. If you zoom out the lens and take a holistic view, things have never ever been better. Which is, you know, not that as Jews we need a reason for anxiety, but that enough is a reason to be anxious. That things have never ever been so good. So despite all of that, we're still in the Golas of Edom. It's the fourth exile because minus Abes HaMikdash, minus Hashras HaShchina, without God's intense dwelling, without His presence on the top of Haramoriah and Harabayas, even with all that progress, it's the beginning of the echo of the shadow of the footstep of the Messianic era. You could taste it. For 2,000 years, our ancestors would have given anything to be just at this point. But still, this point is early on in the redemptive process. We're not yet there. We're still in the Gullus of Edom. Yaakov tries to make a deal. Yaakov tries to take advantage of the moment. I won't say exploit Esav, but Esav is willing to give up anything. What do I care about my status? What do I care about my identity as the firstborn? I'm going to die. I'm starving. I'm exhausted. I'm spent. Yaakov makes some promise. He sells him the Bechora. Yaakov gives Esav lechem nezira. Dashem ha-yochav ha-yesht va-yakam ba-yelach. Va-yivez Esav esa-bechora. That Pasuk says an enormous amount. On page 128. This is not the section we're studying. We're still in our overview. But that Pasuk says everything. Yaakov threw, um, Esav rather, threw away his birthright. Now, you can imagine that there are circumstances where a Jew abandons their birthright. There are circumstances where a Jew has to suspend their belief, their values, their principles. Maybe they should, maybe they shouldn't, but they do. I think to the middle of the 20th century, when so many came to America, and the only way they could earn a Parnassah was to work on Shabbos, the origin of the Hashkama Minyan. The young generation thinks that the Hashkama Minyan began because of all those who wanted to sit and learn in Steigel morning, or such tzaddikim they wanted to watch the kids so the wife could go to shul. That's not how the Hashkama Minyan began in America. We know better. The origin, the genesis of the Hashkama Minyan were those men who were orthodox in the sense that they valued Torah, they valued halacha. In principle, they valued being Shomer Shabbos, but Elamai, they would starve, their family would starve, and I'm not justifying it. I'm not saying it's okay. I'm saying it was a time that it's hard for us to judge anybody. People went to work, and that's how the Hashgama Minya began. It, again, I'm not justifying, I'm not excusing, I'm not rationalizing. I'm just describing a period of time. But what was true about that generation, even when they had to go to work on Shabbos, they cried. Over the, sense of, over the sense of giving up the Bechorah. They were giving up their birthright to live as Shomer Shabbos Jews. There was a sadness. There was a tragic aura. They were crying. 
There are circumstances in history where Jews had to abandon their Bechorah. What does Esav do? Vayochol vayesht vayakom vayelach vayivez Esav He celebrates walking away. He drinks and he eats and he makes merry and he parties and he laughs and he denigrates, he spurns the birthright. Esav doesn't walk away backwards from the birthright. He doesn't walk away with his head down. He doesn't walk away with a tear in his eye. He walks away with his head held high. Sadly, we're seeing this in our generation. There were people who were what we would call today off the derech. There were people who struggled with religion for all kinds of reasons in earlier generations. But when they walked away, it was sheepishly. It was shy. It was with sadness. It was with tragedy that Judaism didn't speak to them. Today we're seeing a generation who are vayochol vayesht vayakom vayelach, which is pretty much a description of college campuses today. Even Orthodox Jews on Shabbos, on college campus, vayochol vayesht vayakom vayelach vayisa to be able to do so with no hesitation, no reluctance, no sadness, no tragic aura, but just to be able to walk away vayives, vayives. Even when we, even when we're weak, even when circumstances for whatever reason we think force us to walk away, it should still be sad. Esav just walks away. Esav just walks away. There's a famine, it forces Yitzchak to go down to Plishtim. He thought he should go to Mitzrayim. Why did he think he should go to Mitzrayim? Who went to Mitzrayim before him? Avram. Masa Ova Simon Lebanim. Yitzchak is going to follow in the footsteps of his father. We'll see in a moment. Why was he not allowed to go down to Mitzrayim? Why? Rashi tells us because he was a Korban Ola. He had a certain sacred status because he was offered as a sacrifice. Ah, the offering wasn't complete, but the intent in the offering was there. And that placed a certain status on him. And his holiness precluded him from leaving Israel. So it's kind of an interesting thing. On the one hand, Yitzchak wanted to follow exactly his father. On the other hand, he applies it differently, not by going down to Egypt, but by understanding he has to go to another exile within Israel itself. And that is to migrate to the area of the Plishtim. Yitzchak is in Grar. There's a dispute over the wells. The Plishtim fill up all the wells that Avram had dug, and Yitzchak redigs the wells of his father. And then Avimelech reaffirms the treaty, and Esav marries. Rav Shechter writes in the new uh, Sefer of Shechter on the Parsha on this pasuk that Yitzchak dug anew the wells of the water that Avram had dug, and he called them the same names. It's Perach uh, Avav Pasuk Yirches. It's not. The Torah doesn't include irrelevant details, insignificant details. Why would the Torah include this? That Yitzchak redug wells, that he gave him the same names, who cares? So Rav Shechter writes as follows, he quotes from the Rav, Rav Soloveitchik explained, the connotation of this Pasuk is that Yitzchak followed the exact Mesorah of his father, the tradition of his father. This is why earlier in the Parsha, when there's a famine in the land, Yitzchak traveled to Gerar, intending to dwell in Mitzrayim, just as his father had done. But Rashi cites the Medrash that Hashem said to Yitzchak, don't go to Egypt, you're a blemish for your offering. And territory outside of Israel is not worthy of you. Hashem was explaining to Yitzchak that by going to Mitzrayim, he was in fact not following in the footsteps of his father. Following the incident of the Akedah, Yitzchak had attained the Kedusha of a Korban Ola, was not permitted to leave Eretz Israel. This restriction was unique to Yitzchak, never applied to Avram, who was permitted to leave Eretz Israel. People often believe, writes of Shechter, that by acting in the same way as their ancestors, they're following the Masorah. However, if the circumstances have changed, performing the same act is not necessarily following the same tradition. Yoshua ben Nun was most certainly a loyal student of Moshe Rabbeinu. Upon conquering Yericho, 
He placed the cherem on the spoils captured in the battle, just as his teacher Moshe had done earlier in his battles. When Achan violated the Isra of the cherem, the punishment for which was the defeat of the Jewish army of Ai, Hashem chastised Yoshua. You caused this calamity. The Achronim wonder. Yoshua's guilt. He apparently was following the tradition of his teacher. Yoshua just did exactly what Moshe did. Why was he wrong to create the same cherem, to institute the same ban if someone were to touch the spoils? He was just walking in the footsteps of his teacher. The Marsha explains that by the time Yeshua, circumstances had changed. Once B'nai Yisrael had crossed the Yardin, the din of Arvas, of Ko Yisrael Arim Zebazev, guardianship, had become operational, placing blame on the entire community, even if an individual were to violate the cherem. In the current situation, even Moshe, Yoshua's teacher, would not have placed such a cherem. Although Yoshua had intended to duplicate the exact practice of his teacher, he was in fact deemed responsible for deviating from the proper procedure given the current new reality. So it's a very, very interesting thing, this notion of misora, which is a catch word also in our time. It's a very uh, controversial question. What innovations are included within our tradition? And what innovations are a breach or break of our tradition? I'm not going to give examples because I don't want to distract us. But there are... Every day, new questions arising. What's within the Mesorah? What's outside the Mesorah? So, says Rav Shechter, quoting his Rebbe, the Rav, you know, some make the mistake of abandoning the Mesorah, but others make the mistake of blindly duplicating what they think is the Mesorah without adapting to a new generation and a new time and a new language and new circumstances. And the real, the real trick, so to say, is to actually be in between. To figure out what is true to our Masora? How can we remain loyal to our Masora, our tradition, but at the same time have the wisdom to adapt it to the changing circumstances? So you'll say, well, who gets to decide that? Who gets to decide where the envelope, where the boundary, when it's pushed too far, what's in the Masora and is adapting, and what is not adapting, but what is actually abandoning the Masora? And the answer is that in every generation there are Bale Masora. We spoke about this last Shavuos. We gave a shear on one of these controversial topics. And we talked about the notion of Mesora and that in every generation there are the Baalei HaMesorah. And that the mission at the beginning of Avos, that Moshe Kibbal Torah Misinai Umisarua, Moshe passed the Mesorah to Yoshua, Yoshua the Zikainim, Yoshua the Zikainim, Anshikinah Sagadola, and the Shashela Sakabala, the chain of transmission of Mesorah for the Rambam and others is not over. It's not over. And the need to identify in every generation who are the outstanding Talmidei Chachamim, who are those who are so literate in Torah that they can anticipate the Ratzon Hashem? Right? The Rav gave the following example in the, in the Hespit for his uncle, the Brisker Rav. You know, the Rav said there are people who are Tamidei Chachamim, they're extremely knowledgeable, unbelievably knowledgeable about Torah. But there are others who are not only so knowledgeable, they've absorbed Torah so much. Their relationship with the Torah is not one that is casual, they're married to the Torah. What do we say about married people? They could finish one another's sentences. So my wife, let's say, may have many dear friends who know her well. And on the one end, if you'd ask what she would want, they know her well. But nobody could finish her sentence or tell you what she would want like I can. Because nobody is as close, nobody is as married. The Bali and Masora are not just people who are, who are so smart. They're people who are so connected. The relationship with Torah is so true that they are trusted to be able to anticipate and share the Ratzon Hashem to tell us where is that fine line being true to the Mesorah but adapting it. He ends this piece of Shechter by quoting Rav Schwab. Rav Shimon Schwab Zatzal once made the following observation. 
when he saw someone who in preparation for davening removed his necktie, tying it around his waist to be used in place of the customary gartel. The doning of the gartel, a sash worn around the waist, is the fulfillment of the Pasuk, Prepare to meet your God. Rav Schwab felt that nowadays, the more appropriate way to fulfill the Pasuk, and in fact to preserve the Mesorah of his community, would be to wear a necktie prior to davening. Thus, in thinking he was fulfilling the custom of his ancestors by replacing his necktie as a gartel, the man was actually forfeiting the fulfillment of that mesora of that very practice. So this is an example, a little more benign than some of the controversial ones being discussed today, but where if Schwab felt, what are you, you taking off the tie to tie it around your waist? That's not the mesora. Once upon a time, wearing that around your waist was the way you showed the honor and respect to Hashem for davening. Today, you wouldn't go to a state dinner, you wouldn't meet uh, a, a powerful person without wearing the tie, and that is being more true to the Mesorah. So Yitzchak redigs the wells of his father and gives them the same names. He's being true to the Mesorah, but on the other hand, he doesn't go down to Mitzrayim. Why? Because his circumstance was different. He was the Korban Ola. So even though he's following the Mesorah of his father, that when there's a famine, to go into a certain exile, but on the other hand, he doesn't go to the same place because circumstances change. Says Rav Shechter, quoting the Rav, you see in here some of the notion, the parameters of this concept of Mesora. Esav marries Yitzchak, decides it's time to bless Esav. Now it's very interesting. What does Yitzchak tell him when he's ready for the blessing? I'm old, I'm blind, I don't know when I'm going to die. I saw, by the way, one beautiful insight. How could Yitzchak, we've spoken about this in the past, how could Yitzchak have made such a gross error in judgment? How could he not see what was in front of him? That Esav was a Russia, and Yitzchak is, and Yaakov rather, is the tzaddik. How could he not see? If Yitzchak is as great as we believe he is, he's one of our avos, how could he not see? So I saw one interpretation that, that says that, you know, sometimes you see more when you can't see when you're blind. Yitzchak was blind. He didn't see what was in front of him. He saw potential. He saw the reality as he wished it were. He saw the reality, the potential he wished were fulfilled. And so Yitzchak's blindness didn't allow him to see the reality as it was. He saw the potential as he wished it. Esav had that potential in him. And that's what Yitzchak saw sometimes as a parent. We do that. Sometimes for the good of our children and sometimes to the detriment of our children. Rather than deal with the reality as we have to deal with it, we only advocate based on the potential we dream and wish they have. And that's Yitzchak. That's Yitzchak's blindness at that moment. But Yitzchak says, No, go hunt. No, make me a barbecue. I want some ribs. I want a good juicy rib steak. Some fried onions on top. Some uh, french fries. Sweet potato fries on the side. I know it's a little early in the morning still. I want to eat it. No. Before I die, hurry up. Hurry up. Smoke me some uh, brisket. Before I die, so I can give you the bracha. Now, if I'm worried about dying and giving a bracha before I die, I think I'd say, come over here so I can give you a bracha. And after the bracha, we'll sit down and break bread. After the bracha, no, we'll have a meal. Why is Yitzhak saying, before I can give you the bracha... No, make me a delicious meal. What's the role of the food here? What's the role of the food? It's not just a question you could ask here. Isn't it not interesting that every time we celebrate Torah, 
we have a meal. For it to be a siyam, you don't have a siyam without a meal. Shavuos, the yantif of Matan Torah, the holiday of Kabbalah Satorah, even though there's a debate when it comes to the other holidays, is it for Hashem, is it for you? Everybody agrees Shavuos has to be partly for you. You got to eat well and drink well and enjoy. Every time we see the celebration of Torah, it's associated with food. Yitzchak says, I want to give you a bracha, you live a life of Torah, first we have to eat, first we need some fleshics. Yitzchak was not a vegan, that is clear, or a vegetarian. That is my Masorah. So, what's going on? So Rabbeinu Bachia here on this Pasuk says that Yitzchak is not simply looking for the pleasures of the flesh. It's not a hedonistic craving or appetite for a good barbecue before I can give you the bracha. But what is it? Rather, we know we have a principle. Chazal tells us, I think Avram Fried or someone once made a song out of that. You can only, when do you feel Hashem's presence? When are you spiritually elevated, uplifted, elated? Only when, not when you have sadness, and not when you feel deprived, and not when your stomach is growling, and not when you're dehydrated, and not when you lack sleep. Lomitoch atzvos, not from sadness. Lomitoch atzvos, not from laziness and not from fatigue. Elomitoch simcha. There has to be an atmosphere of joy. There has to be an atmosphere of happiness. The Shekhinah, Hashem, only wants to come to a party. Hashem doesn't want to be in a sad place. When we live life with a certain sense of simcha, then Hashem, then Hashem is going to be there. So the Sefer Ishlerei Ehu says that that's why Yitzchak specifically said, What do I want? Bring me meat and bring me wine. Yitzchak says, when I give you this bracha, I want to be besimcha. I don't want to be sad. Maybe I'm on my deathbed. Maybe I have a terminal illness. Maybe I feel it to the end. But in reflecting back on my life and transmitting to you, I want to be besimcha. So I'm going to use the elements that make me besimcha, not substances that shouldn't be used to help us feel besimcha, but in an appropriate fashion to satisfy the cravings of the body so that the body will be a platform that promotes and encourages the joy of, of the soul. It's a very Hasidic idea. It's found in a lot of Sifrei Hasidim and it's practiced, we know, by a lot of Hasidim who enjoy within limitations and in a healthy way, Olachayim. The idea which is part of our Masorah, again, in a healthy way, an appropriate way, not insensitive to those who can't or shouldn't be having alcohol, but the notion of the lachaim, or the notion of just eating good food, of Shabbos, of Basar V'dagim on Shabbos, the Oneg Shabbos, is that when we satisfy the body, the guf, we are engaging the guf to be a partner of the neshama. As opposed to, again, I think I've shared this with you recently before, this was the Chiddush of the Balatanya, the Alter Rebbe, in the Sefer Abenonim, in his Sefer Tanya, the Alter Rebbe, as opposed to the Bali Musar and Bali Machshava, who came before him, who said that the spiritual, the soul, needs to negate, it needs to conquer, it needs to abolish the body. The body should be red body and its appetite should be rendered insignificant, should be abolished, and the soul should reign supreme. So the Chiddush of the, of, the, of the Tanya is that no, the Neshama should engage the body and make the body a partner in the goals of the Neshama. That it's not that the Neshama is defeating the Nefesh Behemi, it's that we're engaging it, we're ruling over it, and we're transforming it. So it's not that we take vows of abstinence. It's not that we take vows of fasting. It's not that we take vows of silence because the route to holiness is by removing ourselves from the physical. 
but rather you engage the physical, but you elevate it, you transform it. And that perhaps is what's going on over here. Yitzchak says, no, give me some good food. Because Esav, when I give you this bracha, I don't want to be distracted by the growl of my stomach. When I give this bracha, I don't want to be looking forward to a meal or nostalgic about my last meal. I want to be besimcha. I want to give you a bracha on a full stomach. I want to be happy. I want to be singing and singing nigunim and zmiros and feel full and, 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 and happy and elevated. And therefore, ein simcha ela bebasa v'yayin. And then we'll take it, and then we'll take it from there. Okay, Vaita, we got to finish our summary and get into these psukim. It's getting late. Rivka knows Yitzchak's giving a bracha. She realizes that destiny is about to go the wrong way. She takes an enormous, it's not a coincidence that it's a woman with insight and foresight who is taking this enormous heroic step by orchestrating so that, uh, in fact, Yaakov gets the bracha. And uh, Yaakov comes to, to Yitzchak, Hakol Kol Yaakov, Aidaimi De Esav, which is really a description of Jews for eternity. Yaakov gets, Yitzchak gets the, I'm sorry, Yaakov gets the bracha. Esav arrives. He gets what ends up being a very similar bracha. What's the difference between them? We've discussed in the past. Rivka realizes Yaakov's life is at risk and has him run to her brother Lavan. And then the uh, parsha ends with the prohibition of marrying within the Canaanim. And Esav marries the daughter of Yishmael. The elephant in the room of the whole parsha, which again we've discussed in the past, we won't do now, is the notion of deception and lies. In fact, all of Sefer Bracious is characterized by deception and lies. It's hardly a parsha that goes by that doesn't include gross deception and horrific lies. These are our avos animos, our greatest heroes, the matriarchs and patriarchs of our people. And it seems like they can't tell the truth from Adam and Chava about the Eitz Adas. Can you not eat? Can you not even touch it? What's going on over here? Cain and Hevel. I don't know what happened to my brother. To all the way through these lies that are going on. Avram says, Sarah, pretend you're my sister, not my wife. Yitzchak. Yaakov is lying to his father. What happened to Yaakov? The Ishtam. Yoshev Olam. Emes Emes Yaakov is the Ish Emes. Has there been a greater deception in history? The Chazal say this deception is paid back. Because when Yaakov thinks he marries Rachel, who does he wake up to find next to him? To which the Medrash says, lies go around. What goes around comes around. Karma. So uh, lies are, are the entire... You know, Yosef disappears on Yaakov. The Medrash also says that's part of the payback for Yaakov's lie. And Yaakov says what happened, and his other children say an animal ate him. Yosef meets the brothers. Does he say he's Yosef? He conceals his identity. Deception. The whole Sefer Bracious is lies and deception. Is truth of value in Judaism? The chasimah, the signature of Hashem, is emes. Hashem signs His name as the, the paradigm of truth. Is truth of value? Is it not a value? Is it absolute? Is it relative? Is it negotiable? Or is it something which is uh, objective? So again, we've talked about that in the past. We don't have time now. I want to go back to the beginning of the parsha, Page 124. The very beginning of our parsha. Oi, so much to talk about here. Don't even know where to start. Okay. Ela told Yitzchak ben Avram, Avram holy to Yitzchak. A little repetitive, a little redundant, isn't it? Ela told us Yitzchak ben Avram, these are the children the descendants of Yitzchak, the son of Avram. By the way, in case you forgot from like a millisecond ago, Avram, Holidus Yitzchak. 
These are the descendants of Yitzchak, the son of Avraham. In case that wasn't clear, just to clear up the confusion, Avraham is the father of Yitzchak. Don't we know that? So Rashi says, Who are these toldos? Yaakov, Esav, Amur, and Beparsha. Right? Rashi is already anticipating who are the toldos. We say Ela toldos. What happened to listing the toldos? Look at the next possible. How old is Yitzhak? 40 when he marries Rivka, the daughter of Besuel, the brother of Lavan, when he takes her as a wife. Well, what happened? We're about to list. So let me tell you all about my children. They are, I was 20 when I got married, and then I, well, I thought you were about to tell me about your children. Ela told us these are the children of Yitzhak, and then we never come back to say who the children of Yitzhak are. What happened? So Rashi is bothered by that question. And Rashi says, Yaakov Esav, Amur and Baparsha. Yeah, the story of Yaakov and Esav, what we're going to get to, that's the continuation. So the Pasuk began, this is the story of the offspring of Yitzchak. Ah, the next Pasuk doesn't tell us who they are, because we now have to get into the fact that Rivka had infertility, she got pregnant, it was a rough pregnancy, she gave birth to twins. But we're just introducing what will be the whole story by saying, these are the descendants of Yitzchak. True, it's not the very next words. It's an introduction to the whole story. That's Rashi's interpretation. The Rashbam, Rashi's grandson, says no. The Pshuto Shal Mikra, the simple understanding of the text, it said above that Yishmael was also the son of Avram. Yishmael, the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, was also the son. So Eilat told us Yitzchak ben Avram, Avram holed is Yitzchak. Yitzchak is the Iker ben the Avraham. Says the Rashbam, the Pasuk wants us to know that Yitzchak is the true continuation of the legacy of Avraham. Because God promised it was through Yitzchak that Avraham would build a nation. What is the Rashbam really saying? I'd like to suggest to you that what the Rashbam is saying is the following. Unlike his grandfather Rashi, that the Toldos are Yaakov and Esav, players to be named later. Unlike that, I'd like to suggest to you what the Rashbam is saying is, you want to know the Toldos of Yitzchak? You want to know Yitzchak's legacy, Yitzchak's life? You know what Yitzchak's legacy is? Avram holiness Yitzchak. That he's his father's son. That's his legacy. Nice, huh? You understand what I'm saying? The Peshach? It's not that this is literally who the sons are. We're trying to make a family tree here. You'd have Avram, Yishmael, and Yitzchak. Yitzchak is Yaakov and Esav. Yaakov had... It's not a family tree. What we're saying is, what is Yitzchak's legacy? Yitzchak's legacy is Avram Holidus Yitzchak. His legacy is that he is his father's representative in this world. Why does that make sense? It makes sense based on what I told you a moment ago, that Yitzchak redug the wells of his father, and he gave him the same names, and he was committed to transmit the Masorah of his father. He didn't deviate. He adapted it when necessary, by going to Gerar, not to Mitzrayim. But when not necessary, he redug the same wells, and he gave the same name, because Yitzchak is the quintessential role player. Do you know, of all the Avos, we have the least amount of dialogue with Yitzchak in the Torah. Avram talks to Hashem a lot. Yaakov, we have all storyline, talks to Hashem a lot. Yitzchak is like the silent figure. He doesn't get a lot of, he doesn't get a lot of uh, talking parts in the script of Sefer Bracious. It's very quiet. But moreover, 
he doesn't really have an enormous impact. Avram is the father of ethical monotheism. Yaakov is the progenitor of the 12 tribes and goes through the entire episode, goes down to Egypt with them. What's Yitzchak's legacy? The answer is Yitzchak's legacy is transition. Yitzchak's legacy is he is a role player. He's a link that binds the chain before him and the continuity of the chain that will come after him. And we make the mistake of thinking that to be a patriarch, you need your name in lights, radical innovation, leadership. You need to stand out. But sometimes you can be one of the avos by being a Yitzchak. If you successfully have passed the torch of your parents to your children, Shomer Shabbos, Shomer Kashrus, Emuna, Yerashamayim. You don't have to cure cancer or bring world peace. You didn't have to be the president of the shul or start the new school. You don't have to be the biggest gvir. You could be a Yitzchak. If you simply succeeded in passing the torch and you can in your life know and feel good that you have left children, grandchildren who are on their way and on the path to continue what your parents left you, you've passed the baton, you too are one of the avos or imos. You're following in the footsteps of Yitzchak. That is Yitzchak's legacy. So I'm suggesting to you this morning, maybe that's the pshat and the pasuk. Ela told us Yitzchak ben Avram. These are the offspring of Yitzchak. What is Yitzchak's legacy? That Avram holy to Yitzchak. His legacy is that my father gave birth to me and I'm passing that on to my children. That I'm not trying to carve a new way. I'm not trying to make a new name for myself. His legacy is Avram holy to Yitzchak. My legacy is that I'm my parents' child. And I'm taking what they gave me and I'm passing it forward to the next generation. Look at Rashi, the next Rashi. Avram Holidus Yitzchak. I'm going to now fit this into the next Rashi. Rashi says, Why? Why the redundancy? That story I told you when they were in Egypt for the famine... And Avram's deception, the Ramban says he was accountable for. He made a mistake. I'm not saying it, the Ramban did. So the Leitzan Ador, the cynics of the generation said, Yitzchak, that Avram is an old man. There's no way the kid inside Sarah is from him. I bet she had an affair with Avimelech. That is the child of Avimelech and Sarah. That's what the Leitzan Ador said. They said, Avram and Sarah have been married forever. They didn't have children. One night with Avimelech, next thing you know, she's pregnant. It must be that this child is the illegitimate child of Avimelech and Sarah. What did the Ribbon Shalom do? Hashem made a miracle. Yitzchak will look like Avram's twin. When you looked at Yitzchak, you're like, there's no question that Avram is his father. He was the spitting image of Avram. So the whole world testified, Avram holy to Yitzchak. Yitzchak's not only the son of Avram, that that's what we're saying, but also Avram holy to Yitzchak. One look at Yitzchak's face, he's the spitting image of Avram. So now if you ask me, I think I mentioned this in Shul a couple weeks ago, what do we care what the late Sanei Ador said? Who cares? So Leitzanei Ador, the cynics, the skeptics, the scoffers, who cares? Who cares what they said? So let them say that Avram, that Sarah had an affair with Avimel. Who cares? We know the truth. Elamai, what do you see? The power of cynicism. Cynicism has the ability to contaminate, to corrupt. It's toxic. 
It spreads, it's contagious. And in an atmosphere of cynicism and sarcasm, you cannot build light and beauty. You cannot make progress. The cynicism couldn't go unanswered because it's such a lethal attribute, cynicism. It's so horrible. It's so horrible. Every generation has its cynics and conspiracy theorists. And Avraham's was no different. What's amazing is the Torah felt the need to address it. To address the Leitzanei Hador. So Rebbeisalavechik understands this medrash a little bit differently. And he said so. This comes from, in his Chamesh Drashus, in the five talks that he gave to the Mizrahi, the Rav suggests that the cynics didn't in fact doubt Avram's physical ability to father a child. The Rav homiletically interprets this medrash so beautifully. The cynics were not suggesting that Avram could not biologically father a child. What they were doubtful was that an old man could successfully communicate his radical ideals and lifestyle to a young person from a new generation. There's no way this kid is going to embrace the, the principles of his old man. You see, as much as Avram had revolutionized the world and transformed countless individuals from paganism to monotheism, there were Leitzanei Ador. There were always the cynics who saw his philosophy and ideology as a passing fad, as a short-lived trend. I can tell you as a rabbi, you get up, you try to give the most inspiring speech, and maybe some people give you nice feedback, it's gratifying, but then you always see the Leitzanei Ador, you know, who were able to poke that hole in what you said, who put up this force field, the, the Ramchal, or Moshe Chaim Lutzat of Mesilat Susharim says that Leitzonus, cynicism, is so self-destructive. You know what? He, likes, he likens it to a sword that has oil smeared on the outside of it. But the arrows can't penetrate the sword. Instead, they slide right off. So the cynic has a force field of oil. And they can't ever hear a message to inspire. They can never learn. They can never grow. They don't have real relationships because they're just cynical about everything. Nothing penetrates Nothing gets inside. Nothing is absorbed. Nothing is taken seriously. And the one they hurt the worst in that is themselves. So said the Rav, this generation looked and said, ah, this new truth of Avram, it slid right off of them. It didn't penetrate. They didn't embrace it. And they didn't believe anyone from the young generation could. How could an old man with extreme ideas inspire this young kid to embrace his legacy? Never going to happen. Instead, this kid's going to follow Avi Melech. He's going to follow modern society and culture and popular trends instead of the outdated ideas of his old man biological father. So the Rav reinterprets the Medrash that the cynics weren't questioning Avram's biological ability to father a child. They were questioning whether Avram could successfully transmit values with this enormous generation gap. There's no question the kid's going to embrace the pop culture of Avimelech in Egypt. They'll never embrace Avram. This is what the Rav writes. Listen to the quote. People laughed at the event. They did not believe Isaac would inherit Avram, that he, a young lad of the new generation, would continue to carry Avram's vision and laws, that he also would engage in building altars and calling on the names of God. They laughed at Avram's dreams and that his son would give his life for Torah and fight for the sanctity of Avram's house. The scoffers said, Sarah conceived from Avimelech. Others claimed they bought themselves a foundling from the marketplace. It's impossible to pass on Avram's outlook, the mitzvahs, the statues, and laws to the modern generation. When Avram dies, people said his entire philosophy will perish his altars will be dismantled, the Shulchan Aruch will be eaten by moths, and all the trace of his life will vanish, just as the grass will grow over his grave. But instead, what do we see in our parsha? The exact opposite. Yitzchak, that it's Avram Holidus Yitzchak, that Yitzchak exactly embraces the legacy of his father, that he fills the wells, that he gives them the same name, and the Rav's interpretation offered in the early 1960s 
is poignant and profound today, and maybe even more today than ever. Listen to how the Rav put it. Yitzchak dug again and he called their names after the names of his father called them. The same Gemara, the same Shulchan Aruch, the same Shabbos, the same laws of divorce. Who could have foreseen that the young modern Yitzchak would also say that a divorcee is forbidden to a priest? That he would demand a kosher kitchen and fight for religious education and the like? Who could have guessed that he would speak with the same language that old Avram spoke as the author of Shulchan Aruch, as the Ramah, as the Gona Vilna, as Rav Chaim of Velazhin? Beautiful, now This image that Avram Holidus Yitzchak that the young generation can and does embrace, does redig the wells, does call it the same name, and so on. So this is our challenge. The cynics and the scoffers, the Leitzani Hador, are active in our generation, but we have to be that Yitzchak, that Avram Holidus Yitzchak, to redig the wells, to call the same names, to perpetuate the values, to be that role player, a link in that chain of transmission. Bob. Well, we say that Avraham was so old, and how, how could he... Uh, Father or child. Yeah, right. Now, how old was Sarah? She was also very old. Why don't we say the same? Because right now she's pregnant. And they said they're married for so long. Avram didn't get it done. It must be that night she spent in the palace. That must be how she conceived. Why would you believe it's from Avram? Now, there's the fact that Sarah could conceive, we know, because she's the one who's pregnant. But who's the father? That was the question. And the cynics said, the simple interpretation of the Medrash, is that the Leitzanei Ador said, it must be Avimelech, it can't be Avram. Why don't we ask the question, how could a woman at that age give birth? Because she gave birth. That was the miracle. That was the miracle. She gave birth. So the Pasuk continued to describe. Yitzchak was 40 when he took Rivka, the daughter of Besuel, the brother of Lavan. Do we not already know? Ask Rashi, We know all this. Last week's Parsha wasn't that long ago. You don't have to remember from last year, just from last week. We know she's the daughter of, of Besuel. We know she's the sister of Lavan. Says Rashi, Lahagid Shvacha, to tell us her praise. Shaisa Bas Rasha Vaachos Rasha, Umekoma Anche Resha, Velolamda Mimasayim. She's the daughter of a Rasha, the sister of a Rasha. She lives in the neighborhood of a Shayim, and yet she emerges. She emerges so beautiful nonetheless. So why are we reiterating her poor yichus? Because to tell us this is a praise that speaks to her greatness. The Balaturim says, Lavan ha'arami, arami, the Aramean, osios haramai. The same exact letters as ramai, which means the tricky one, the, 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 um, the deceitful one, the tricky one, the manipulative one. Exactly. Rabbi Salavechik and the Rav Chumash writes about this too. He writes, The focus on Rivka's family in her verse can be understood in light of a comment of the Targum Yonasam ben Azil on the Torah's depiction of the Jewish people in Egypt. When the Pasuk says, I am God, the God of your father, don't be afraid of going down to Egypt, I'll make you a great nation. The Targum comments, Only there will God make us a great nation. Furthermore, the Balagod derives from the Pasuk, this teaches the Jews there became distinguished and distinctive. We learn from that Pasuk, right? In the Haggadah. Only in the midst of Egypt were the descendants of Avram able to develop into a great nation. In another context, the change would not have taken place. To develop the qualities that characterize our nation, mercy, modesty, and loving kindness, we had to be thrust into the vortex of power, might, and brutal force, and experience the antithesis of our ethos. Only through exposure to these adverse character traits could we achieve our true essence as a people. You know, sometimes it's by being exposed to a virus that you build up the immunity to it. 
You know which country in the entire world has the least bordering on no peanut allergies at all? Israel. Why is that? Because every baby eats bamba. I'm not joking. There's actual studies about this. There's virtually no peanut allergy in Israel because every little baby is eating bamba even before they nurse. So, says the Rav, says the Rav, sometimes to develop the immunity, to build up the antibody, to develop the strong sense of self, it's by maximum exposure to that which is antithetical. That's what was happening in the Kura Barzel. When we became a people in Egypt, hardened by the fiery furnace of Egypt, and in the same way, Yosef had to be sold to an executioner, otherwise he would not have been able to appreciate Yaakov's greatness. The Pasuk in Shirashirim writes, Kashoshanim ben hachochim, like a rose among the thorns, so is my beloved among the young women. The rose, a soft-petaled flower, flourishes specifically among thorns. The nation's greatness was due to its suffering among the Egyptians. The recognition that its moral heritage was entirely different. For the same reason, the Torah emphasized Rivka's genealogical background. Only by growing up in such an adverse environment could she truly appreciate the greatness of the world of Avraham. So she is the rose among the thorns. A thorn named, named uh, Lavan, a thorn named Besuel. She grows up among, among the thorns. The Sforno says, why is the Torah reiterating this? Because you say, where could an Esav come from? Rivka's at Tzadikus. Yitzchak's at Tzadik. No, where did this, where did this Esav come from? So the Gemara Baba Basra tells us that when you get married, if you want to know what your children will look like, look at your brother-in-law. That's what the Gemara says. From the woman's brother, you can already learn a lot and anticipate what your children will be like. Where did the Gemara learn that from? From here. Says the Svarno, Where did Esav come from? He was a chip off the old block of his uncle Lavan. Lest you think, because sometimes, you know, we don't know someone's family. They move to our community, and you see these children, you're like, where could they, who, where? look at these parents. I'm not talking about their Russia, chas v'shalom, like Esav. You know, I have dear friends who are the most quiet, and respectful, and mellow, and sedate, and their children are like bouncing off the walls. <laughs> say, where could, they, where could they have come from? You know, there's DNA mixed in from part of the whole family. So that's why it's telling us Rivka's whole background, so that we're not shocked and surprised later, and to ask, where could Esav possibly have come from? Why did it tell us that Yitzchak was 40 years old? Says the Rashbam, Ksiv ben shishim shana from this psukim, we can ourselves calculate that they had, she had been, uh, she had, had struggled with infertility for twenty for twenty years. What happens? Verse twenty-one. Yitzchak davens to Hashem. Now, this is an unusual verb to describe davening to Hashem. The Yalkut Shimoni, the Medrash, quotes 13 synonyms for davening. Rina, Bitzur, Tzaka, Zaka, Itur, Pilel. 13 synonyms the Torah uses for davening. They all mean davening, but yet they're 13 different words. We know there are no absolute synonyms in Hebrew. Whenever two words seem to mean the same thing, there must at least be a subtle difference between them. So there's a beautiful Sefer, 
which we have just concluded learning on Wednesday mornings, called Sha'arim Betfila, Rav Pinkis, where he gives a chapter for every single one of those 13 synonyms to explain that unique form of davening. It's an incredible sefer. It's been translated into English. If you want to listen to the whole series of classes online, it's on Y.U. Torah, Sha'arim Betfila. Look up my name, Sha'arim Betfila. It's, I don't know, 50, maybe more, 100 classes on Sha'arim Betfila that we went through the book. So he has a whole chapter on Etur. What is this language of Etur? The Gemara in Sukkah says, an Etur, an Etur, Ayin Tof Resh, is a pitchfork. Just like a pitchfork flips over the hay, so to our davening flips over Hashem's opinion. Until now, Hashem said, no child for you. Now, through this tefillah, it's sought to train, change Hashem's opinion. Look at Rashi. Hirbe v'hiftzir b'tefillah. Rashi, and this is what the, the uh, Rav Pinkus develops on that chapter of Etur. Etur, that form of davening is to be a nudnik and relentlessly daven to Hashem, not taking no for an answer. That's Etur. I had some children like that. Just they will, relent, they will not take no for an answer. Relentless, ruthless, just they won't take no for an answer. They won't take no for an answer. Over and over and over and over and over again. That's what's going on over here. That's what this form of tefillah says. The Rashbam says similarly, Riboy Dvarim. This means over and over and over and over again. How did Yitzhak Davin? He Davin Lenochach Aishto, Kiakarahi, on behalf of his wife, because she was barren. Ve'asarlo Hashem Atarifka Ishto. Hashem was in fact entreated, it worked being that Nudnik worked, and Rivka conceived. Now a few comments here. What does it mean, Lenochach Ishto, he davened for her? Why wasn't he davening for himself? What does it mean he davened for her? So Rashi says, Lenochach Ishto, Ze'omid b'zavazumispalel, this one stood in this corner and davened, V'zuomed b'zavazumispalel, God forbid it wasn't uh, mixed davening, they each a uh, separate corner, and they davened, and they davened separately. And what, who did Hashem listen to? Because the prayer of the child of a righteous is greater than the prayer of the tzaddik of a rasha. Does that make sense to you? I would have thought the reverse. It's counterintuitive. We just praised Rivka, the rose among the thorns. I would think the one who's the tzaddikus from Rishoyim, wow, that balas tshuva, so to say, Sure, prayer should be more, more beloved by God because it's more special. Whereas his, he's a tzaddik ben tzaddik. So I once saw an explanation. I forgot whom. I'm so sorry. But I once saw the explanation, which I think resonates greatly. You know, when you're the tzaddik ben Russia and you've discovered this beautiful thing, so you're motivated internally. You're driven by your own passion, by your own discovery. And your righteousness is is self-generated. But when you're the tzaddik ben tzaddik, you know, it's not easy to be a ben tzaddik. Most tzaddikim do not have children who are tzaddikim. Because they live in the shadow of their father. They can't measure up to their mother. They'll never be able to accomplish what they did. They'll never be able to have that name, that reputation. They'll never be on that level. To be a tzaddik ben tzaddik is even harder than being a tzaddik ben rasha. If you're a normal person with a normal moral compass and you're the child of a rasha, you should be driven to want to build a different life. But if you grow up with a tzaddik, what's left for you? That's the pinnacle. That's the peak. That's the highest. How can you be a tzaddik? 
say nonetheless, I'm going to walk in that footstep, I'm going to do my best, I'm going to be a tzaddik in my own way, a tzaddik ben tzaddik, Ooh, that's special. Somebody who's committed to that, that tefillah is even greater, is even more beloved, is even more readily, is even more readily accepted. What does it mean, lenochach? We said he davened opposite. Why isn't he davening for himself? So the answer is, Hashem promised him he was going to have a child. We alluded to this earlier. He was confident he was going to have a child. That was the promise Hashem made him. But he was worried for his... He was worried for his wife. What else can Lenochach mean? So that, that's, how, that's how the Meshachachma understands it. The Meshachachma understands it. Lenochach ishto, bishvil ishto. The Meshachachma says, Yitzchak was confident, because it says, Karasa Shema Yitzchak, Vakimosius Brisiosol, Zaro Acharav. Yitzchak is going to have Zaro Acharav. He's going to have descendants. But he was worried. What if my descendants will come through the equivalent of a Hagar, my half brother's mother? He wanted it to be through Rivka, so it's Lenochach Ishto. What he is davening is that the, that the, that the, uh, his promise that he's going to have children, let it be through, through Davka, through Rivka. This is what the Svarno says. I can't find the Svarno, but this is what the. I lost the Svarno. Where do go? Oh. He says, basically what Yitzchak was davening was, Hashem, you promised me I was going to have children. I don't want them from out there. Lenochach Ishto means this one right here in the other corner. This one, Lenochach Ishto, the one opposite me. That's the one I want the children from. Don't make me look elsewhere for it. I'll leave you with the Rav Ashawai says, what does it mean, Lenochach Ishto? If I could find it, here it is. Rav Ashawai says, Lenochach Ishto, sorry. He said, the Mishnah says that a father passes on to his son the physical properties of Noi, Koach, and Chachma. It's a Mishnah in Edios. The father gives the properties of beauty, strength, and wisdom. Some explain that when Yitzchak prayed for children, Lenochach, he was really praying for a child who would have all three of these properties. The first letters of which spell the word Nochach. Noi, Koach, and Chachma, the Mishnah says. Nun, Chaf, and Ches. Nochach. However, when Rivka passed by the entrance to the idolatrous temples and felt her unborn child struggling to escape, she said, Lama Kain Anochi. Lama Kain. What was she sensing? Lama Kain. The Nun and the Chaf. What's missing? The Ches. The first letter Kain are Koach and Noi. Nice, this child's going to have strength and beauty, but I don't want a strong, beautiful baby if he doesn't have Chachmah. So Yitzchak had daven for Lenochach that this baby have Noi, Koach, and Chachma. When she walks by and davens, she says, Lama Kain Anochi. I, I sense that the, the Chaf and the Nun, the Noi and the Koach's there, but where's the Chachma? I want the Chachma as well. And that's what she was davening for, Lama Kain Anochi, to be able to have it all within her. The, um, the last thing I'll leave you with, Ve'ater lo Hashem, the Rapshutzer Rebbe. Ve'aser lo Hashem. So the, the the simple understanding is 
that Hashem answered him. Right? The Pasuk says, Vayatar Yitzchak lenochach, Hashem lenochach ishto, Vayayaser lo Hashem. Ever occur to you, why is it the same word? Yitzchak daven to Hashem, and it should be, but Hashem answered him. Why is he using the same word for davening? Vayayaser lo. So the Rabshat Rebbe says, Vayaser lo Hashem means Yitzchak's praying for children was so strong that even God began praying that Yitzchak should have children. Vayaser lo Hashem. Yitzchak's tefillah was so strong, he won God over that God also picked up a tehillim. He made God pray. It's a beautiful, beautiful image. Obviously, it's a paradoxical image. God's the one who can answer the prayer. But it means his prayer was so intense. It was so potent and powerful. Vayaser lo Hashem. Hashem heard the prayer so much that Hashem prayed for him too. It's like Yimo Anochi B'tzara. That Hashem embraced and started praying and davening for Hashem as well. Mirza Hashem will pick up from here next year. Have a great day.